Last week, we began a study on the topic of spiritual warfare, and we've called this study Fight Club for, it's a play on words, it's fun, and for many, this topic may seem a little odd to talk about spiritual warfare, but I think that in light of the events in our nation this week, we're reminded that perhaps it's more relevant uh, than we could have realized. Uh, We were reminded again this week, three days in a row, I woke up on my Twitter feed to tragic news and reminded over and over and over again that we still live in a world where there's evil, there's injustice, there's fear, there's violence, there's racism, misunderstanding, and lack of empathy. And these were all people this week, whatever your perception or whatever your understanding of the events that happened, we can all agree that these are real people who are made in the image of God and whose lives were cut short due to the prevalence of sin in our world. And last week, one of the things we talked about as we talked about spiritual warfare is that Satan, we believe that Satan is a real being. We believe that there is a real enemy and that the devil is not just some uh, imaginative thing that we use in spirituality, but we believe that Satan is a real being and we believe that he would love nothing more than to use the events of this week to further divide our nation and further divide our churches. I believe that he wants to make this issue politicized so that it becomes easier for us to take a side than it is to take responsibility. And I also believe that God, in the midst of an unseen spiritual realm where there, is, uh, there are unseen battles that happen every day, I believe that God wants us to stand for what is right and what is true. And so perhaps this, re- this study that we're in on spiritual warfare is much more relevant than we thought it was last week. And the question today is, how do we fight against the enemy's attacks on our joy and on our unity? And how do we fight these things with the hope of the gospel? How do we fight things like temptation? How do we fight things like addiction and anxiety? How do we fight these things? In a few months, our church is going to be beginning a Celebrate Recovery ministry for those who are walking through addictions and walking through things that they need recovery and reconciliation and healing in. And how do we do that? How do we fight these things if we know that there's an unseen realm and there's unseen forces that are warring against us? How do we fight about things like temptation and addiction? I believe the scriptures give us words that we can use on this journey. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. The Apostle Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. These are the words of God through the Apostle Paul. And last week, 
we offered three truths about spiritual warfare. One is that spiritual warfare is a real thing. The second thing we said is that we know that we have an enemy that is against us, trying to derail us, trying to seek us, trying to devour us. But even more true than all of those things, that we have a God who's fighting for us. He's with us. We have a God who has an army of angels at his disposal fighting for us. And this week, the question is, okay, it's all a reality, but what about me? What about us? How do we fight? What about things like temptation and accusation? How do we deal with these things? How do we fight? So that's the question this week. And I want us to know two things. Uh, If you follow any kind of sport that involves fighting, you know that there's two things in strategy for UFC or boxing. One is you've got to know how your enemy fights, but then you've got to have your own strategy. You've got to know what your strengths are. So the, the things we want to know today are, one, how our enemy fights, and two, how we fight in response. So the first thing, how the enemy fights. As in any fight or competition, you need to know your opponent, their strategies, not just your own. You need to know their strengths, their weaknesses, their blind spots. And the Apostle Paul said, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand the schemes of the devil. Be ready, be prepared so that you, can, you know the plans that the, that the enemy has against you. And this word schemes in the New Testament is the Greek word methodia. It means methods or strategies. Know the enemy's methods, know their strategies, know the way they fight. 2 Corinthians 2.11, uh, the Apostle Paul says, Do not be ignorant of Satan's devices or his strategy or his plans. And so what are his devices? What are his plans? And his names, actually the way that the, the, the writers of Scripture name Satan gives us a good view into how he fights. If you look in Job uh, 1, 6-7 and 1 Thessalonians 2, 18, Satan, the word used, is adversary. In 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter uses the word devil or the word diabolos, which means liar or slanderer. The Apostle Paul calls him the tempter in 1 Thessalonians 3. The Apostle John says he is the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12, 10. And so Satan's schemes and his tactics can generally fall into three categories. Deception, accusation, and temptation. These are his schemes. He deceives, he accuses, and he tempts. And when we think of demon possession or spiritual oppression, we often probably, if you grew up, if you're about the age of me or possibly a little bit older, you probably remember the movie The Exorcist. And so when you think of demon possession or spiritual oppression, you think of some little girl with her face turning green, her head spinning around in circles, and vomit going all over the bedroom while the priest is trying to cast out the demon. Right? That's what we think. But the, and, and it's easy for us to think, oh, spiritual warfare, and dismiss it because it seems kind of crazy. But if you look throughout the Bible, the schemes of evil in our lives are much more subtle than what we see in The Exorcist or what we see in Emily Rose or whatever movie you've watched. See, that's why we're teaching this series because often deception, accusation are much more subtle. And if we aren't able to see it, we will be overtaken by those things. And you think spiritual warfare doesn't apply to me because I've never seen any demons But maybe you have. You just haven't seen them with your eyes. You've experienced them. See, spiritual warfare, I don't want you to think this series is about all this weird, out-of-the-ordinary experiences. Because it's not. It's about a battle that we fight every single day to stay faithful to the way of Jesus. And we all feel in our lives a pull away from obedience to God at times. This is when we're tempted to sin, when we're tempted to walk away from the faith, or when we're tempted to uh, suppress our faith in situations. That's spiritual warfare. Because those are the enemy's schemes. They're subtle, but they want to keep us from walking in the fullness of life. 
William Gurnall, who was a colleague of John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, but also fought for the abolition of the slave trade in Britain years ago. William Gurnall wrote a book on uh, spiritual warfare, and he says that Satan does not leave fang marks in our flesh, but rather he leaves lies in our heart. That's how he fights. It's not through the visible crazy stuff. It's through the subtle, deceptive lies that we believe in our heart. And he deceives by using deception, accusation, temptations. First thing, deception. In Genesis 3, there's this account of what theologians call the fall, the fall of humanity or original sin. And the first two chapters of Genesis describe this world that God created that is beautiful, it's peaceful, it's painless, and God places humanity in this garden so that he can have a relationship with us. And he gives us the ability to create, he gives us the ability to work, and the ability to play. The scriptures call this the Garden of Eden, they called it Shalom, it's the place of human flourishing, it's as things that were intended to be. And there was this garden full of yeses, go out, Adam, Eve, enjoy, I mean, enjoy the, the earth that I've created for you, enjoy all the things that are there. Is a garden full of yeses, yes, do this, yes, experience that, but there was one no. And the no was, do not eat of that tree. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God offered a narrative to the first humans where he said, enjoy all of my creation except that one tree because it will kill you. Enjoy it all except for that one tree because it will kill you. But then a serpent comes into the story and starts telling a counter narrative and starts deceiving. He says, don't eat of the tree. That tree's fine. It's a tree. (laughs) It's fruit. What's the big deal? Don't worry about it. And in a moment, the serpent begins deceiving Adam and Eve from what God told them to be true. And this is the first time that the enemy derails humans, and it's by deception. And at the heart of deception is a voice that gets you to question what you have been told to be true by God. See, the serpent gets Adam and Eve to question God's word. He gets them to question the consequences of disobedience, and he gets them to question God's goodness. See, this is what deception looked like for Adam and Eve in the garden. See, when you're being deceived, the, the, de- the deception causes you to question God's word, question the consequences of sin, and question the goodness of God. Question God's word. Ver- uh, chapter 3, verse 1 in Genesis, the serpent says to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree of the garden? Did he, did he really say that? Is that really what he said? you sure you heard him right? Are you sure you can believe that? Can those words be trusted? And then roll it into the 21st century, what we often hear is, yeah, but can those parts of the Bible be trusted? Can the the Bible be trusted? Can God's word be trusted? Are you sure you're hearing that right? Are you sure you're reading that correctly? Isn't the Bible outdated? Isn't it primitive? See, people question if we as Christians should really rely on the wisdom of the teachings of an ancient book. Can you really believe that nonsense? That's the beginning of deception. Can you really? Did God really say... He questions God's word. And then he questions the consequences of sin. He says, if you eat of that tree, you will not surely die. Verse 4, he said, Genesis 3, verse 4, he says, if you eat that, you're not surely going to die. It's a piece of fruit. See, Satan works by showing us the pleasures of sin. Oh, that fruit, it's going to taste so good. Think about how juicy it's going to be. Think about like, it's like a good grapefruit. Like right now, the grapefruits are so good. And it's like just, oh, it's going to be so great. And it's going to be, it's going to quench your thirst. But he never shows you the consequences of what happens when you eat it. One author says that Satan shows you the bait but hides the hook. This is often when we're tempted to sin. It's deception. 
Oh, you know what? Uh, look how much fun that'll be, but don't think about what'll happen if you do it. Um, I, my wife and I used to watch the television show Scandal. Um, Kerry Washington is great. Um, the guy who plays Fitz, incredible. Um, but we watched it about two or three seasons, maybe three seasons, and we stopped watching midway through the third season. And not because the show got weird, although it did get very weird. It got bizarre. But we actually stopped watching the show for the reason that the way the storyline is written, uh, we found ourselves cheering for adultery, rooting for it to happen. See, there's this plot line or whatever where the president of the United States is married, but they sort of present the wife as like an old, you know, whatever, and he's in love with this lawyer thing. And um, we found ourselves, as we watched the show, hoping for Fitz and Olivia to get together. And we're, because we're like, you know what, Fitz's wife, oh, she's not, she's bad, you know, and we're cheering, we found ourselves cheering for adultery. And I, and my wife and I were like, you know, we got to stop watching this show. And you may think, you're like, okay, that seems like really like puritanical and like whatever. But listen, I don't want my mind, I do not want to let my mind flirt with the bait because I don't want to take the hook. And listen, that may seem weird to you, and you may be able to withstand that, but I'm, as I'm watching that show and I'm cheering for adultery, I don't want there to be any piece of my mind that celebrates something that God has said has serious consequences. So we stopped watching it. Because I don't want to minimize the consequences of sin. The enemy causes us to question God's word, to question the consequences of sin, but then he causes us to question the goodness of God. In, verse, in chapter 3, verse 5 of Genesis, it says, For God knows that when you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like him, and you'll know good and evil. The serpent says, God's just trying to keep you from having fun. He doesn't want you to be happy. See, God, what, you, what we have to know is that God came to give us life, not to hinder our lives. And for those of you who are young, and you're thinking that you can live it up now, that you can live up, have all the fun now, and then you can get right with God later in life. I would tell you that if you think, I'm going I'm to live it up now and do the religious thing later in life, I would tell you that you have no idea what God is like. Because if you see God as a mean school principal who's trying to take away your recess, but God is the giver of life. God is a good giver of good things. And when God set, commands us to walk in a certain way, He's not trying to restrict us from joy, but rather He's trying to lead us into fuller joy. And a quick word about the commands of Scripture. It's easy for us to see them as arbitrary rules. A lot of people think, why does God command that we do that with our, our sex lives? Or why does God care about what we do with our money? Why does God care about all these things? And we look at those and we think, these are arbitrary restrictions that are on the, in the Bible placed on us. But... I would encourage you to see them as invitations into fuller life. God is calling you to be pure in your sexuality because he's calling you to a life of fullness. He says there's a way to best enjoy this gift that I've given you. When God calls you to be generous, he's not trying to take your money from you. Rather, he's calling you into a life of generosity, which anybody in this room who has been generous knows that that is the way to experience joy. We say it at Christmas all the time. It's better to give than it is to receive. God's not trying to take something from you. He's trying to offer you a process that will allow you to experience more joy. J.A. Mateer says that the commands of God are not cramping restrictions on the fullness of life that we may otherwise have enjoyed, but they are the very gateway to the fullness we seek. And often we are deceived into thinking that if we do what God says to do, we will miss out on some things that life has to offer. But the scriptures are here to tell us that if we obey what God has given us, then we will walk the path of fullness of life. So that's a deception. That's what deception looks like. But what does accusation look like? 
Genesis 3 records that the serpent was very crafty. He was a little schemy little guy. And nowhere is the devil craftier than when he's pouring on accusation. Many of you have probably felt this. You know, you, you are a Christian, you're following the way of Jesus, you're trying to do things right, but then you, strip, you trip and you fumble and you stumble and you do something that you thought you would never do. And immediately the accusation comes on. Oh, oh man, I can't believe you did that. A real Christian would never do that. How can you call yourself a follower of Jesus if you did that thing? And, you, and the enemy will say to you, that situation you're in, God's punishing you for what you did. And when Satan accuses, he's crafty because he'll take something that is true, God's holiness, God's wrath towards sin, but he won't let you forget it. He won't let you forget that, but he also, he won't, he'll blind you from the rest of the truth. Yes, yes, God is holy and he has wrath towards sin, but the, the enemy, when, they're, when he's accusing you, will cause you to forget that God is a God of grace and mercy and that he will forgive you even when you stumble and fall. When I was in college, uh, I had a best friend, his name was Chase, and uh, he was a godly uh, guy, he was, you know, he was a Christian, he was, I mean, just a really mature follower of Jesus, and I was a new believer at the time, and I was still, you know, a lot of times you hear these stories, these people, they come to faith, and then like all of their sin stuff, like they just like, it's gone, like all their temptations, they like, but that wasn't my story. My story was I came to faith, and I still wrestled with the same things for years and years and years, and after one particular night of just being stupid, I'd had months of where I felt like I was really walking in faithfulness to God. And I just had a night where I did some stupid things and I was just down on myself and I was thinking, how could I have done that? I remember sitting in my room in my apartment and thinking, I just couldn't stop thinking about how angry and disappointed that God must be at me. I was thinking, how could I have done that? People know you're a Christian, Will. How could you do that? You've brought shame upon the faith. And I texted my friend Chase and I said, hey, man, this is back when like, text messages were still like 15 cents a minute, so it cost me money. <laughs> but I said, Chase, I said, I did this, 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 and this last night, and I'm feeling just so much shame. What do I do? And he texted back. I'll never forget what he said. He said, Will, you're listening to the enemy. That's not who you are. And I said, what are you talking about? I picked up the phone and called him because I didn't want the text message rates. Uh, it may have been the weekend, though. That was back when we got nights and weekends on our phone. And I called him. I said, what are you talking about? That's not who I am. I said, Chase, I've been dealing with these same struggles for years and years and years, and I can't seem to shake them. What do you mean that's not who I am? He said, well, the enemy is accusing you of something that was paid for on the cross. He says, rest in God's grace and forgiveness. Stand up, brush yourself off, and keep moving toward Jesus because God has forgiven you of those things. And you are not who the enemy says you are. You are who God says you are. And he says you are the beloved child of God. And in you, he is well pleased. Walk in that. That changed my life, that little conversation with my friend Chase. And last week I was reading an ancient author. And he said, when it comes to feel like, feeling like you're being accused of sin, he says, for every one look you take at your sin, you must take five looks at the cross. And I think of the song we just sang, The Wonderful Cross. Why do we sing about the wonderful cross? Because the more we look at the cross, the more we realize that our sin has been forgiven. We are not defined by who we are. Or we're not defined by what we've done, but rather we are defined by who Christ has called us. See, the, the enemy loves for us to dwell on our sin, but, for to, but to forget about the cross that covers our sin. Think about those of you who are parents. You know that you can't, if you discipline your child, or if you get on to your child, you can't just discipline your child and then be gracious to your child. It can't be a one-to-one -one ratio. 
For every disciplinary, every criticism you have to give to, you give to your child, you have to give five or ten affirmations. If you give a one-to-one correlation of criticism to affirmation, your kids are going to grow up feeling like they don't measure up. But every time you discipline, you've got to heap on the affirmation. The criticisms, see, the criticisms in our lives, and you know this, they lodge in really, really deep. But the affirmations, if there's enough affirmation, those criticisms can begin to be pushed out. And so as a parent, we know that you've got to continually affirm your kids even as you discipline them. See, accusation is when the devil tries, you to cause, tries to cause you to focus only on your sin and not hear the words of affirmation that the Father is speaking over you. He causes you to have a low view of yourself so that you've become distracted from the mission that God has called you to live on. See, he wants you to forget that your sin has been covered and that you possess the Holy Spirit. I heard one author say that if you're a Christian, the sins that you can't forget, God can't remember. And the enemy wants to cause us to forget that. That's what accusation is. And then temptation. We all know what temptation is. Because we've all had the moments where it just feels like temptation is pulling us closer to the things we don't want to do. And when Satan tempts, what he wants you to do is not have a low view of yourself like when he's accusing you. In temptation, he wants you to have a high view of yourself so that you fall into the snare of the devil. He'll remind you of God's love and grace and mercy, but he'll blind you to God's holiness and wrath and sin. And listen, temptation, it's different for every one of us. The enemy knows that there's different ways that we're tempted. And so if you are the, I work hard at work all week, but I don't get any respect at home guy, then it's easy for you to say, you know, as Satan will tell you, you know what, I deserve this. Nobody understands my stress. I'm going to go do this. If you're the young person trying to live out the commands of Jesus in this crazy city, Satan will show you how much fun everyone else is seemingly having and say, you don't want to miss out on that, do you? You don't want to miss out. And he will cause some of you to rationalize your sin. That's what temptation often is. I'm not greedy. I'm just wise. I'm just thrifty. I'm not gossiping. I'm just concerned. It's a prayer request. I'm praying for the person. Somebody's been there. (laughs) Others of you, he'll make you bitter over your suffering. Or he'll make you bitter over the fact that your life seems worse than others. And he will say, you know what? You deserve this. Everybody else is getting theirs, you get yours, and here's how you can get it. See, Satan has a variety of ways in which he tempts us, and we need to be aware that he attacks us all differently. See, do not be ignorant of his devices. Those are Satan's schemes. He deceives, he accuses, and he tempts. That's what he does. But what are our devices? How do we fight? That's what I want us to see. How, we, how do we fight? Or, if you're a Chance the Rapper fan, how to give Satan a swirly, Right? And for those of you who aren't Chance the Rapper fans and don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry, all right? <laughs> the scripture has plenty to say about how we fight Satan's attacks. Ephesians 4, 26-27 says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Don't give the devil a foothold. 1 Peter 5, 6-11 says, the, the, dev- the devil is prowling around like a lion seeking to devour, devour you. Therefore, humble yourself Cast your anxieties on Jesus, be sober-minded, be watchful, resist the devil, and stand firm in your faith. And there's a lot there in those passages. But due to time, I want to basically break it down into just a small digestible categories that you can take with you. The first thing you need to know, if you want to know how to fight against Satan's devices in your life, the first thing is to know your own weaknesses. Know which of Satan's devices work on you. Do not be ignorant of his devices, the Bible says. 
Know how Satan plays specifically on your weaknesses and on your sinful desires of your heart. Listen, Satan is not responsible for your sin. You can't say the devil made me do it. The devil doesn't make you do anything. He's not sovereign. The devil, though, can tempt you to rationalize and walk into the snares. But he will, and he will hit you where you are weak. And he will expose your blind spots and expose your weak spots. And he will expose the places in your heart that desire other things over God. And he'll attack those things. Everybody's favorite third-string quarterback, Tim Tebow. (laughs) J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. He said, if I've already thought through a situation and have a response prepared ahead of time, in the event that temptation rears its ugly head, it's that much easier to resist. That's what Tim Tebow says, the great theologian. Um, Another great theologian, G.I. Joe. (laughs) Knowing is half the battle. So know your weaknesses. Know where you're weak. If you know that you have an issue with pride, surround yourself with those who can call it out in your life. If you know you have an issue with lust, put things in place. That was the Holy Spirit speaking to you through the microphone. Put things in place that will allow you, that will protect you from those things. If you know you have greed in your heart, if you're tempted toward greed, put things in place that will protect you from those things. Know your weaknesses because the enemy knows them and he will expose them. But the second thing we do is we do what Jesus did. We learn how to fight like Jesus. There's this incredible story in Matthew chapter 4 where the devil actually comes into Jesus' life and begins tempting him in the wilderness. And the way that Jesus responded in this temptation is there's a lot we can learn from it. In Matthew chapter 4, we, we learn that um, in Jesus' response to this temptation, G, the devil comes in, he's trying to tempt Jesus. But here's what we need to know. It's often easy for us to look at Jesus in these situations and think, why? Well, he's Jesus. Of course he resisted temptation. But you've got to understand that in this moment, he was fasting. He wasn't using his God stuff in these moments. He wasn't using his deity, the deity piece of who he was. He's 100% man. He's 100% God. But he wasn't using his God stuff when he resisted the devil. He was being empowered by the Spirit, which the Scriptures say that we have as well. So don't look at Jesus and think, I can't do that. Jesus is being powered by the same Spirit that lives within you. And when he was being tempted by the devil, this is what he did. He quoted Scripture out loud. The devil said, are you hungry? Turn these, bread, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus responded by quoting Deuteronomy 8. He said, man does not live by bread alone. And listen, you've, we, if you want to fight the, the schemes of the enemy in your life, know Scripture. Know how to fight deception and temptation with the words of truth from the Scriptures. And to do that, you need to know Scripture. You need to know how to read the Bible. This is why we're doing a lecture series starting this Wednesday on how to read the Bible so that we can be prepared to fight temptations when they come. Tim Keller, who pastors in the city, he says, Like a collection of landmines, saturate your heart with the Word of God so that when Satan tries to step in there, he's blown to bits. I love that. Psalm 119, the psalmist says, I have stored his Word in my heart so that I might not sin against God. When you are being tempted, when you are being accused, when you are being deceived, learn to know what is true and quote it out loud. The second thing that you see from Jesus is he told Satan to go away. And just a quick theological sidebar, um, it's, most of us have probably not been tempted by Satan himself. He's, he's not omnipotent, he's not omniscient. Often the temptation you experience is by demonic or just by your own flesh or just by the circumstances around you. But Jesus, when he was being tempted by Satan, he told him to go away. 
He, he spotted what was happening and said, be gone, Satan. Verse 4, Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, he says, be gone, Satan. You're not welcome here. And earlier in the Gospels, when Satan was influencing Peter to try and talk Jesus out of going to the cross, you know, Peter was saying, Jesus, don't go to the cross, don't go to the cross. And Jesus said that that was Satan influencing him to say that. What did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Get out of here. See, like an unwanted intruder, oftentimes we can feel the temptation coming on. And whether it's coming from within our own uh, wicked hearts or whether it's coming from some sort of demonic presence outside, we can say to like we would to an unwanted intruder, get out of here. You're not welcome. And if it's possible, sometimes if you can't get away from the situation, you get away. If you can't force the situation away, you get out of the situation. Flee from immorality. Flee from temptation. And here's the final thing that we can do to fight like Jesus. And this is a very deep theological concept. So I want you guys to put your theology hats on. It comes from Dr. Gary Brashears, who's one of the most respected theologians in America. And he said that when you feel temptation coming on, like I said, get, I mean, put your theological hats on. This is from a world-renowned theologian. He said, when you feel the, uh, the, the schemes of the enemy coming your way, he says, do Jesus-y things, is what he said. <laughs> Truly, this is one of the most well-respected theologians in America. But he said, he said, seriously, Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, when Jesus was being tempted by the enemy, what happened when it was all over? Angels came and ministered to Jesus. And he says, do Jesus, he thinks, find ways to be ministered to. So when you're being tempted, when you're being deceived, when you're being accused, when, you feel, when you're living in the lies, do whatever it takes to minister to your soul. Pray. Play worship music on your iPod. Call a friend. Call your pastor. Read scripture. Sit in silence. Meditate. These are the ways we fight against the work of the enemy. We quote scripture out loud. We know our weaknesses. We tell him to go away. And we do Jesus-y things. And then finally, what we need to understand is that we need to know how to put on the gospel as our armor. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, it says, Put on the belt of truth the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of peace, and the shield of faith. And this all boils down to putting on the gospel. Or as I've heard it said before, learn to preach the gospel to yourself. It's easy for us to preach the gospel from a, you know, a microphone or whatever. And we, but it's so hard for us sometimes to preach the gospel to ourselves. Preach the, learn to preach the gospel to yourself. When you're tempted to sin, preach to yourself that Jesus died so that you could be free from that and that you don't have to be defined by that and that you can have victory in that area of your life. When you're accused, when you're deceived, preach to yourself that there is nothing that you could ever do that would make God love you more and there is nothing that you could ever do that could make God love you less internalize that in your heart and tell it to yourself over and over again. Remind yourself daily that your sin was paid for on the cross. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross, every single one of your sins was in the future. He's not surprised when you stumble and fall. So you ought not be either. You pick yourself up, you repent, you look to Jesus, you thank Him for His grace and mercy, and you keep walking toward holiness. One ancient author was asked how Christians ought to respond to Satan's accusations. And he used a parable. And this is his exact words. He said, says the child to the bill collector, if I owe you anything, go to my father. So a believer may say to justice, if I owe you anything, go to my Christ. 
who has underwritten me fully. I must not sit down discouraged under the fear of those debts which Christ to the utmost farthing has fully satisfied. You remember when you were a kid and somebody would say, you know, if it was at school or something, there was a field trip you had to pay for or the book fair came and they'd say, you need to pay your, you know, your, your pay your little invoice or whatever. You need to pay what you owe. What would you say? I'm going to go to my dad. I'm going to go to my mother. I'm going to go to whoever is underwriting this thing. And as a believer in Christ, if the enemy comes to you and says, you must do this, you must do that, you say, look, I'm going to go to my father. You take it up with him. Because he has paid for everything on the cross for me. I don't have to deal with your accusation. I don't have to deal with your temptation. Because Christ has paid in full everything I need for hope and salvation and satisfaction. The remedy against this is to look upon all your sins, the same writer, as charged to the account of Christ. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Will you pray with me?